0: Well, I want you to think about the last time someone, maybe yourself, used the word awesome. Perhaps someone had just gone on vacation in the smoky mountains, and they experienced the beautiful sky and the beautiful mountains, and they come back to you to explain what they saw, and they say, it was awesome. Or maybe it's you and a friend, and, and you have a great experience together, and it's so great in fact that when you go back to tell other friends, you're trying to explain the details, something to experience what you experience, and finally, you're exasperated, and you just say, you just had to be there because it was awesome. Or maybe you're walking into a donut shop, <laughs> and, which I'm sure none of you do. And you walk in, and there's just that hot, thick, juicy, glazed donut sitting there with your name on it. And so you get there, and you consume it at about 10 seconds. And you get in your car, and you sit down, and you think to yourself, that donut was awesome. Whatever it might be, we could all agree that the word awesome is used to describe a variety of things. But I'd like to suggest to you this morning that there is only one situation that is truly fitting to use the word awesome. And it is when pondering and reflecting on God's transcendence. This morning we're we're going to be diving into this important attribute of God that, in many ways, is an overarching title for the incommunicable attributes of God that we have and will continue to learn about this summer. And, and, and what I want you to do, this is my aim, at least for this morning and our time together, my aim is that you would leave this place with one thought one thought resounding in your heart and mind, which is this. God is awesome. So we begin by turning our attention to the verse I just read a few minutes ago. If you haven't already, turn to John 1. Turn there with me now. John 1, verse 18, which reads, No one has ever seen God. John, the writer of the gospel, was no doubt thinking back to Exodus 33, where where Moses asked God, show me your glory. And what did God say in response? No one may see me and live. What does this mean? Well, first it means that God's glory is so glorious that for sinful man to see God results in immediate death. But secondly, it means that God far surpasses, far surpasses any complete human understanding of who he is. Or to put it another way, God is completely, totally, and absolutely transcendent. Now you might ask, well Brad, what does it mean that God is transcendent? Here's how I defined what it means for God to be transcendent. For God to be transcendent means that God far surpasses the binding realities of all that he has created. He is not subject to them nor affected by them. He is totally, freely, and completely above all that is subject to him. It's what it means for God to be transcendent. The Bible speaks much of God's transcendent nature, this attribute, but this morning in our limited time together, what I want to do is just simply give you three reflections on God's transcendence. Three reflections that if you ponder and embrace these, your heart will be filled with the thought, God is awesome, the rest of your life. So, three reflections on the transcendence of God. If you're here this morning and you're seeking God, can I, can I just say this is the perfect place to be today? Because we talk about God here. And, and more than that, we're going to be talking about potentially the greatest attribute of God, and that is his transcendence. So I, I, I encourage you to lean in, listen up, and to seek him further this morning. Or perhaps you're here and you're, you feel spiritually dry. For some time now, it's been hard for you to read your Bible. So pray. And if you're honest, it was hard for you to come to church today. And can I just say, you chose a great Sunday to come. As we reflect on the transcendent nature of God, I pray that your heart would be filled with fresh affection. And then, for those of us who are here, who are bored with God, maybe to you, God is a divine being who hangs in the clouds and is is above any understanding to you that you think he's not worth my time. Well, this is a great message for you as we lean into what does it mean that God is far above all that he has created. So, friends, fasten your seatbelts as we dive into three reflections on God's transcendence, which the first is this. God is transcends time. God transcends time. Revelation 22, 13 tells us that God is the alpha and omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. God has no beginning or end because he has always been. In the text that TC preached on last week, Psalm 90. Moses touches on this in verse 2 when he writes, Before the mountains were brought forth, there ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting eternity past to everlasting eternity future, you are God. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 57. Keep your finger in John 1 and turn to Isaiah 57. And in Isaiah 57, this is a beautiful picture of God's transcendent nature. But I want to hone in on two verses in particular. Verses 14 and 15. Isaiah 57, verses 14 to 15. Let's say this. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. And then these words. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. Now the next three words are incredibly important. So I want us to read them together. So on the count of three, we're going to read the last three words of Isaiah 57. Here we go. One, two, three. Who inhabits eternity? Can you fathom that? What does that mean? It means that whereas we exist in time... God exists beyond time, such that Isaiah writes that he inhabits eternity in such a way that Psalm 90 verse 4 says that a thousand years are like a day in the eyes of God. Think about all that happens in a thousand years, generation after generation after generation. The rise of empires, the fall of empires. The rise of new empires, the fall of those empires. Formation, reformation, counter-reformation, a thousand years of history for man are like a few hours in the night for God. I mean, even think about our country. We've existed for around 250 years. God, that's a, Guys, that's a, that's a sneeze to God. It's nothing to him. It's a matter of mere minutes in his perspective. God transcends time in that he is in total control of it. And get this, unchanging through it. Remember the writer of Hebrews, when he writes in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, he says, God is the same, what? Yesterday? And today, oh yeah, and forever. Get get this. God's attributes do not change with time. This is incredible. Because we are not so. The the way we look changes over time. I'm so grateful for that because in seventh grade, uh, but I mean look at me now. <laughs> Why are you laughing? When we look, changes over time. The way we think changes over time. There are things you, you used to believe that maybe you don't believe. Things you used to think and now you're like, that was stupid. We grow in knowledge and change in skill over time. Guys, we're able to do things at 40 that we couldn't do at 15. And vice versa. <laughs> there are things that we could do at 15, we can't do at 40. When you're 15, you fall down and hurt yourself minutes later, get back up, and you're great. When you're 40, you hurt yourself sleeping. (laughs) But God is not like that. No. God does not change through time because he transcends time itself. And, And this reflection, this reflection that God transcends time and does not change through It's especially encouraging the two groups of people here this morning. First, for those that suffer. Because God transcends time and does it change through time, you never have to wonder if he will sustain you in your trial. Never have to wonder that. God did not use the Apostle Paul to write, my grace might be sufficient for you if I feel like it. No, he used the Apostle Paul to write in 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you. Do you know what that means? No matter the hardship, no matter the trial, no matter the season of waiting you're in, God is an ever-running fountain of sustaining grace for you right now. Where you're sitting, God is just pouring out grace, pouring out grace, pouring out grace, sustaining you, in whatever trial you find yourself in this morning. And so let your heart be filled with peace and gratitude in being reminded that God is an anchor that will not be moved. No matter how hard the storm, no matter how strong the disease, no matter how big the disaster, no matter how hard the dying, God will always be with you, and that will never change. This is especially encouraging that God transcends time for two people. First, for those that suffer. Secondly, for those that sin. Because God transcends time and doesn't change through time, you never have to wonder two things. First, you never have to wonder if he can save you. Perhaps you're here today and you believe that God wants nothing to do with you. You think thoughts like, I'm too bad, too sinful, and too far gone. What would God want to do with someone like me? And can I just tell you, that was me too. And and yet, where you need to be encouraged that God can save you is in this. Jesus' mission of seeking and saving the lost has not ended. He's still seeking people today. In fact, you sitting in the seat you're sitting in, in this place, at this moment, listening to me say this, is proof that he's seeking you. God God brought you here to hear that truth, that his grace is sufficient for you and he can save you today. So the question is not, can God save me? The question is, will I humbly admit my brokenness and turn to him by faith? So will you? So first, you never have to wonder if he can save you. Secondly, you never have to wonder if he can keep you. Perhaps you're here this morning, you're a Christian, and you've come to this place discouraged and doubting. You looked at what you said you would never look at. You said things that you told yourself you would never say. You thought things that you swore you never think. And you come into this place wondering Does God still love me? Let me remind you of the words in Psalm 103, verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. Isn't that good news? This is glorious news for those in Christ because it means that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on your behalf sealed your identity forever. Such that, such that, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin, he sees your Savior He doesn't see your wickedness and unrighteousness. He sees the perfect righteousness of his son that has been imputed to your account. This means that for those in Christ, God's grip on your soul is as strong on your worst day as on your best day. So we should let our hearts rejoice that our souls are held in the unshakable grip of God's hand. And that's never changing. So, three reflections on God's transcendence. First, God transcends time. Secondly, God transcends necessity. God transcends necessity. Think of all the things that we need to survive food, water, oxygen, sleep. And depending on who you're talking to, coffee. <laughs> but God is not so. This is what theologians call God's aseity. Which, which means that God derives all that he needs from himself. Can you fathom? Now there are many passages in the Bible that speak to this, but I want to highlight For sake of time, just two. The first, you don't have to turn there, I'll I'll read these aloud. Acts 17, verses 24 to 25, where the Apostle Paul is speaking to the men of Athens and says the following. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. Listen, as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Friend, whoever you are this morning, there is nothing you have that wasn't first given to you. Everything. Even the fact that you're breathing and your heart is working, and your mind can understand things, and you can use logic, and that you can hear and see and taste and all of the beauties of life. God gave that to you. Psalm 50, verses 10 to 12. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. <laughs> I love that. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. R.C. Sproul expounds on the truth that God transcends necessity when he writes the following If we go a few days without water or a few minutes without oxygen, we die. Likewise, human life is susceptible to all kinds of diseases that can destroy it. But God cannot die. God is not dependent on anything for his being. He has the very power of being in and of himself. And then he says this. This is the supreme difference between God and us. God has no such dependence upon anything outside of us. Himself. Now, you might be wondering, Brad, why does this matter? Why does that matter? Because it is easy to forget we need God and so easy to believe that God needs us. And yet so many people believe this is true. A.W. Tozer, who wrote his book, Knowledge of the Holy, years ago, had wrote with complete accuracy when he writes, Almighty God, just because he is almighty, needs no support. The picture of a nervous, needy God fawning over men to win their favor is not a pleasant one. Yet, yet, if we look at the popular conception of God, that is precisely what we see. And then he writes this. 20th century Christianity has put God on a leash. So lofty is our opinion of ourselves that we find it quite easy, even enjoyable, to believe that we are necessary to God. But the truth is this, God does not need us. He is in need of nothing that we can give him. Friend, friends, God is not a divine egomaniac in need of finite men to stroke his ego. I mean, think about the foolishness of that. Like, like God is sitting, hanging out in perfect unity, in perfect joy and peace with the Holy Trinity. And, and God, God the Father sits back on a couch. And he says, guys, I got this brilliant idea. Um, I'm gonna create foolish, stubborn, sinful man, and then, here's the thing, we'll be needy of what they have. I mean, how idiotic. No, he he is not a God in need of us. He is an infinitely glorious God who is in need of nothing we have to offer. Can I just tell you, that includes our worship, we don't come to church to worship because God needs it. No, we don't worship because God's needy, but because he's worthy. And he's worthy because Romans eleven thirty six: from him and through him and to him are all things. Therefore, our response, our response is that we lay down our lives, lift up our voices again and again and again because he alone is worthy of it all. Whereas we are finite, fickle, and frail creatures in constant need, God needs nothing because he has all that he needs in and of himself. So, we've considered two reflections on God's transcendence. The first, that God transcends time. He's in complete control of it and unchanging through it. The second reflection is that God transcends necessity, that unlike us, he is in need of nothing because he has all that he needs in and of himself. And to begin, our third reflection on God's transcendence, I invite you to go back to the verse where we began, John 1.18. To turn with, with me back to John 1 verse 18, which says this. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. John begins by telling us that no man has ever seen God because sinful man is unable to see his transcendent glory in all of its fullness and live. Until, he writes, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. What does this mean? It means that Jesus Christ is the glory of God wrapped in flesh. To know Jesus is to know the Father, such that all throughout the Gospel accounts, Jesus frequently says, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. To see Jesus is to see God. So I must ask, when is the last time that left you in awe? Think about it with me for a moment. The transcendent God of the universe... The very one who transcends time, space, reality, and necessity, get this, enters time, space, reality, and get this, becomes needy. Jesus, the transcendent God of the universe, became thirsty, hungry, in need of sleep, discouraged, susceptible to illness, and so much more. But the greatest tragedy of all of this is not just that he came. The greatest tragedy of all is that this transcendent, infinitely worthy God came down to his created people, and they crucified him. Why? Because... Only the death of the infinitely worthy, transcendent Son of God could atone for our sin. Friend, if you're here this morning and you came into this place thinking that your sin is little, you are incredibly deceived. Because for even our, quote, smallest sins required the atonement of the death. Transcendent God of the universe. There is no such thing as little sins. Every sin you and I commit is like looking into the face of the transcendent God of the universe and saying, you're not worthy of my life. Every sin. And so what do you do? You chase money. You look down on others. You gaze at porn. You gossip. You don't forgive the people in your life that have wronged you or hurt you. You buy what you don't need. You run after anything and everything that you believe will satisfy your soul, all the while rejecting the transcendent, infinitely worthy God of the universe. And that happens every time we sin. And so my question for you this morning is this. Are you done trying to get full on what is empty? Trying trying to satisfy your heart with the things of this world is like trying to get full on eating wind. It will only leave you wanting and yearning for more. And there will scarcely be a day in our world today where the world will not tell you the lie. Go after more. Things, things, things. While God stands saying, that will not satisfy you. And this, my friends, is why the transcendent God of the universe sent his son so that we can know our third and final reflection on God's transcendence, which is this. God's love transcends life. God sent his son to bear all of our sins so that through his life, death, and resurrection, we might come alive to experience the all-satisfying love and glory of God. That's why he came. And this is the greatest news in all the world. You want to hear any better news than this this week? John Piper agrees when he writes, the greatest news in all the world is that Jesus Christ died and rose again to forgive the treason of our souls, which have turned from savoring God to savoring self. And then he writes, in the cross of Christ, God rescues us from the house of mirrors and leads us out to the mountains and canyons of his glory and majesty nothing satisfies us or magnifies him more than this. God's love transcends life in that it is eternally more satisfying than anything you will ever know in life, above and beyond, such that David writes in Psalm 63, verse 3. Do you remember this? He says, your steadfast love is better than what? Life. But not only is his love for us all satisfying, it is also incomprehensible. You can't grasp it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, how would you answer this question? How much does God love his children? What would you say? I mean, you could say, well, He loves you so much that he made you in his image and gave you life. You could say he loves you so much that he sovereignly put people in your life to share the gospel with you and gave you faith to see that it was true. You could say he loves you so much that he broke your slavery to sin and set you free to be a lover and doer of righteousness. You can say he loves you so much that he has promised to make you like him day by day by day and he will not stop until he's finished. You can say he loves you so much that he's given you an eternal, unfading, ever-living hope that will never be taken from you in this life. And you can say he loves you so much that he has promised that no tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword will ever be able to separate you from his love. And so much more. So how much does God love his children? So much that Paul prays in Ephesians three eighteen to 19 that we might have power to comprehend the length, the width, the depth, the height of his love. And to know the love of Christ, here it is, that surpasses knowledge. Friend, go ahead and try to exaggerate God's love for his kids. You can't do it. So great is his love for us that it transcends our ability to even grasp it. Puritan Thomas Watson reflects on this when he says, it was wonderful love that Christ died for us instead of the angels that fell. They were creatures of a more noble extract and in all probability might have brought greater glory to God. Yet that Christ should pass by those golden vessels and make us clods of earth into stars of glory. Oh, the hyperbolic love of Christ. And dear friends, if we love him now, how much more will we love him when we see him? Have you you ever... Sat in a worship service. I find it happens to me almost every Sunday. I'm just sitting over here for a service, and I'm just singing a song, and the lyric just grips my heart. Have you ever had this happen to you? And you just think for a moment, I could do this forever. Yeah. And, and, and there's something in me where it's like, don't stop playing. Jake, stop. Don't stop playing the guitar. <laughs> Keep playing, because I just love God, so much, my heart is filled with so much affection. And friends, if that has ever happened to you, imagine what will happen when we see him. You haven't even seen him yet. And yet, our hearts rejoice with joy inexpressible. Many of us are familiar with the story of Helen Keller and Ann Sullivan. Helen Keller was stricken with a illness that left her blind and deaf, unable to speak and to talk with others. And so Ann Sullivan, the teacher who came along her and and helped her to grasp these things, came alongside her, helped her to learn how to communicate by feeling the face of the one speaking and helping her to sign in the hands of those that she was talking to, and I just, I love this so much, that this picture that will be on the screen was taken towards the end of, of Helen's life. And, and, and when you look at her face and you see the, the joy that's just filling her face, and then to think, she can't even see him. And yet, she's meeting President Eisenhower for the first time. And and joy is just overflowing. And can I tell you, if you're a Christian, you're no different than Helen. Because, as 1 Peter 1, 8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Then he continues on, Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Dear friends, if our hearts are so full of love and joy in God, though we have only seen him through the eyes of faith, how much more when our faith becomes sight? We've never seen God, and yet our hearts rejoice. And the Bible says there's coming a day when your heart's going to explode within you, when you see him as he is is. There's coming a day when this life will pass and we will see love for the very first time. Can you wait for it? can wait. So, because God transcends time and necessity and because God's love transcends life, we say today and we'll say forevermore, God is awesome.